Katie, imagine jumping in the shower and not turning on the water. Just wiping your body with dry paper. People would call you crazy. So why wipe your butt with dry toilet paper when you can wash with water from a Hello Tushy bidet? Jesse, for years, bidets have cost thousands of dollars and are available only to the richest of assholes. The Hello Tushy Modern Bidet Attachment is here to democratize the blessings bestowed by bidets and offer clean buttholes to everyone. Hello Tushy attaches to your existing toilet, no electricity or additional plumbing needed, and cleans you up with a precise stream of fresh water. That's not salt water, that's fresh water. All for $79. And your Hello Tushy bidet will cut toilet paper use by 80%. So it pays for itself simply by how much TP you save. Every Hello Tushy Bidet attachment comes with a 60-day risk-free happy butt guarantee and a 12-month warranty. Stop wiping your butt and start washing it and join the millions of happy Hello Tushy customers right now. And now is a particularly good time to join this movement because, as everyone knows, the Monday after Thanksgiving is Fiber Monday, a real holiday that definitely exists and which everyone celebrates. And for Fiber Monday, you can get 20% off plus free shipping right now at hellotushy.com slash barpod. This Fiber Monday deal is Hello Tushy's best offer ever. And even though you might have a butt that doesn't quit, this deal's only good for one day on Fiber Monday. So go now to hellotushy.com slash barpod for 20% off and free shipping. That's hellotushy.com slash barpod. Jesse, how's it going? Katie, overall it's going pretty well and happy Thanksgiving, but I have a little bit of a bone to pick with you. Uh-oh, what's that? All right. So uh, Thanksgiving week was a little bit rough for me. Just, you know, everyone's dealing with some stuff. I'm dealing with some stuff. I had a COVID scare. Turns out I'm negative. And to- Did you get it from the stable? <laughs> deep cut. I want it to be a deep cut, but you make the fucking horse girlfriend joke every <laughs> every episode, every opportunity you get, including an advertisement. <laughs> Look, I just want to normalize horse dating. I just want to normalize it. I care about you, Jesse. This is for you. I did edit a, an interview called What It's Like to Date a Horse in like 2015. So I think uh, I may have launched that normalization process. But uh okay, so I was having a down week. I decided to go up to a place called Breakneck Ridge. It's this amazing hike in the Hudson Valley. It's like this, you sort of climb up this very steep rock face and then you hike through the woods alongside this like sweepingly epic part of the Hudson River. Uh as I was starting the hike, you and I were texting about some business stuff, and I forget the exact context, but I basically said, okay, whatever, I'll handle this thing um, later. I'm in nature right now. Uh, and I basically sent you this photo of this incredible hill across the river from me, framed by these bare trees. There's the sun peeking out of clouds low in the sky. It's just incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get to it. Late fall photo. And what I think you're going to say in response is like, holy crap, that's beautiful. Holy crap. Like the universe is incredible. Jesse, we're all in this together. I'm so glad we're partners. Instead, here's your response. I'll read it verbatim. This is to a photo of a mountain across a river with the epic sun behind it. Katie Herzog, quote, looks like a big old titty. Jesse, look, I have an artistic eye. I just see titties everywhere. I can't help it. It's just, it's in my blood. What can I say? And it looked like a big titty. Okay, that's what's so annoying. I saw this as like nature's majesty, as proof of God, and now I can't not see the titty. It does look like a big old titty. 
Uh, but I didn't see it that way. Jesse, I cannot imagine anything that would be more proof of nature's beauty than a big old titty. Just think of it that way. Is this what it's like to be like a lesbian? You just see like breasts and vaginas everywhere? It's disgusting. <laughs> That's what it's like to be a straight man, actually. But anyway, moving on. Apparently, I'm, <laughs> apparently, apparently. I'm sorry I ruined your vision of the world. I, I hurled myself down that rock cliff. I was so disconsolate. Uh, <laughs> well, that's my favorite for the world. <laughs> Big old titty. Uh, okay. So this is blocked and reported. You are Katie Herzog, a degenerate perverted lesbian. <laughs> I'm just, I'm Jesse Single, uh, apparently an asexual Jew. I cannot, I cannot see a big old titty, even if it's towering behind a river right in front of me. Uh, yeah. Now you will. This is, uh, this is a podcast, I think. Um, you had a good Thanksgiving? I did. I had a lot to be thankful for. Um, primarily on that list is COVID because I realized that the thing that I love most in the world, which is being antisocial and refusing invitations to everything and never leaving my house and generally having a very well-developed sense of agoraphobia, has now made me something of a hero. Yeah, you're a hero. I'm a hero. By never leaving my house, I am a hero. This is like the final sort of revenge of the nerds. Like if you were already set up with a life in front of a computer doing nothing, like you're, you're the winner. You're the hero. Yeah, nothing in my life has changed. That's it. I don't have to commute anymore. It's been great. So thank you, COVID. What are the two of us going to discuss other than mountains that look like breasts? Jesse, today we're going to be talking about white tears, specifically white tears that emerge from the announcement that Jordan Peterson has a new book coming out. And after that, we are going to be talking about uh, some drama ongoing at The Guardian and how a columnist resigned. Yeah, so uh, Jordan Peterson is a Canadian Harvard-educated psychologist. Uh, he wrote a book called 12 Rules for Life. He got famous in the culture war arena because he basically expressed some fears that as a Canadian professor at the University of Toronto, he would be compelled to use pronouns against his will. Um, there was an element of truth to that, also an element of misunderstanding on his part. We'll get to that. Uh Jordan Peterson is really loathed by progressives and particularly sort of uh, a lot of journalists and academic types, right? Uh, yeah, I think that would be putting it mildly. Um, my, I, I'm not sure if I've actually talked about this on the podcast before, but I wrote a few pieces about Jordan Peterson. I went to a few of his events, um, and I didn't find them particularly remarkable. They were there was nobody in, in hoods outside burning crosses or anything like that. Even though he has um, a lot of gotten a lot of criticism for being a quote unquote white supremacist, um, what I saw was a, a much more diverse crowd than I expected. At least at his event in Seattle, I made a joke about this on Twitter. There were lots of white men, yes, but they also brought their Asian girlfriends, um, which is actually true. There were, it, it, but it actually was more diverse than I expected. Yeah. Um, so I wrote about Jordan uh, a couple times and I was working on a piece last year about an event. So there was, there was a film that came out, a documentary about Jordan Peterson and, uh, these Canadian filmmakers whose name I'm blanking on, unfortunately, um, made this really sort of nuanced, good documentary about his life. And they had, they had been working on a different story about Jordan Peterson. And then all of this drama erupted around him. So they sort of shifted focus onto the, onto the controversy. And so I was interviewing them because, um, they, they, they made this documentary in a bunch of, of different venues, deplatformed it. So, so basically staff members and places 
places like Toronto and Brooklyn would complain about the documentary being showed. They, of course, hadn't seen the documentary, which was not a glowing profile of Peterson at all. Um, and then they would freak out and demand that their bosses, you know, um, cancel the screenings, which did happen in a couple of cases. So I was interviewing these these filmmakers. And while I was interviewing them, they got a text message. And I'm just going to read this for you. So the text message was from a pastor, and the pastor had agreed to screen the film um, at, at, at his church, and he was getting complaints. And so while I was interviewing this filmmaker, he, he forwarded one of the messages to, the, to these filmmakers, uh, and it read the following. Fair warning. Several community organizations are planning to shut down your showing of the Jordan Peterson propaganda film. While many of us aren't Christian and some even flat out condemn the religion, we do not want any harm to come to your place of worship or those within. However, we cannot allow fascism to continue to rise and will not tolerate its presence in our city, whether it is on the streets or on the waterfront or in a church. Read some history books, read about eugenics, read about sex and gender, and then compare it to Peterson. Pray on it if you must. Do the right thing. And as much as we joke about it, we really don't want to have to bring the guillotine to fix society i mean that's uh pretty chilling it is pretty chilling although i love how they they manage to like they really need to throw in there that they're not christian they don't like they <laughs> listen listen up jesus freak <laughs> yeah exactly um i think that, so he ended up he went he went ahead and screened the film and i don't think there was any drama and there was probably a couple reasons for that one was that it was actually in the suburbs outside of portland so you would have to like get in a car or get on a train to get there and the other was that the day before or maybe a couple days before a local kid who was a member of Antifa was killed. Um, and I think that sort of took the focus off of the film. Um, so, you know, that's obviously tragic, but there were not these like great protests outside of his screening of the, of the Jordan Peters, the critical Jordan Peterson documentary. Yeah. Um, so yes, he, he melts certain people's brains. Um, because, well, let me, let me get to sort of the, the reason we're talking about this and I'll talk a bit more about why I think some of the reaction to him has been severely overblown. But, uh, this is from Vice. Reading directly, this article came out, we're recording Friday, I think it came out two days ago. Several Penguin Random House Canada employees confronted management about the company's decision to publish a new book by Peterson at an emotional town hall Monday and dozens more have filed anonymous complaints, according to four workers who spoke to Vice World News. I love this quote. He is an icon of hate speech and transphobia. And the fact, I guess the fact is that he's an icon of white supremacy, regardless of the content of his book. I'm not proud to work for a company that publishes him. A junior employee who is a member of the LGBTQ community and who attended the town hall told Vice World News. So I love that. It's like, despite what he has actually written, he is an icon of white supremacy. It has nothing to do with what the man has actually said. And let me just uh, do the, the best part that, that got the most attention online. Another employee said, quote, people were crying in the meeting about how Jordan Peterson had affected their lives, end quote. They said one co-worker discussed how Peterson had radicalized their father and another talked about how publishing the book will negatively affect their non binary friend. So there's some uh, there's some tears going on. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I made a joke earlier about how it's white tears. We don't actually know that it's white tears. But if it is white tears, these people should realize that white tears are violence. They're weaponizing white tears against Jordan Peterson. So we should probably talk a little bit about what Jordan Peterson actually believes versus the narrative about what he believes. How well versed are you on Peterson's uh, actual work? So I've looked into like some of the, the biggest dust-ups, which tend to involve – there's often like exaggeration of what he said. Okay, so let, why don't we start with the biggest, which is he sort of uh first rose to fame or infamy in I believe 2016 because he said that under Canadian law, 
specifically C-16, a federal law updating uh, sort of federal civil rights law to include trans people and gender identity as protected, he was afraid he could sort of be jailed or fined for not using people's uh, preferred pronouns, including like weird neo-pronouns like Z, Z or whatever. I have that basic rundown, right? I think you do. And and so what he said in, on his – so he sa- he talked about this in like a YouTube dispatch and this was really the thing that propelled him to infamy at first. And so what he said was actually – I watched this entire thing. It's like over an hour long. And what he said was not even – even I won't use people's preferred pronouns. He said that he wouldn't be compelled to do it. Um, so it, it's one of these cases where he's basically not saying like, I, I refuse to do this because it's the polite thing to do. He's saying, I, re- I reject the government being able to tell me what I can say. Yes. And there was a flurry of coverage that sort of portrayed him as crazy for worrying about this. Like he had one quote where he said like, you know, I won't pay the fine. I won't go to jail it would be very hard to go to jail for misgendering someone in Canada. But where he's correct is um in, in his province, Ontario, there is an Ontario Human Rights Commission where you could be fined, at the very least, fined or, or directed to sort of diversity training if you intentionally misgendered people. Right. Can you imagine this act being like compelled to go to a fucking diversity training by the government? I know. It's so and it's so weird because it's this sort of like I guess pseudo government body. We have a similar one in New York City, like a human rights commission that like, I don't understand exactly how it interacts with the law, but it basically it can issue a fine. So the point is, I do not think there is like a spate of people being fined for misgendering in Canada. But if the question is whether Jordan Peterson could be fined for not respecting someone's pronoun, including neo pronoun, that seems to be true. So I think people, Jordan Peterson sort of mixed this up with C-16. I do not believe C-16 changed this, but the this Human Rights Commission regulation already on the books, if you wanted to intentionally not use someone's preferred pronoun repeatedly, you could in fact be punished for that. That's not crazy. And that is, like you said, he's not like willy-nilly trying to misgender people or use pronouns they don't want. He's just saying, I, I object to the fact that the government is – compelling me to do this, which I think if we actually had that discussion out of the open, most people would probably be a little uncomfortable with that, right? Right. It's a free speech argument. And Canada does not have the free speech protections that the United nowhere actually has the free speech protections that the United States have. I'm not sure how it is in Canada, but in the UK, if you misgender someone on Twitter or get into some fat spat on Twitter, the police will come to your house. They can come to your house. We've seen examples of that. They can. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very different. Um so I think because sort of gender identity and we'll get to this in the second segment is like this one area where if you slip up in a high profile way you are you are Hitler forever like there's very little middle ground between being a good ally and being an evil person this sort of launched Peterson into this category where he's just evil now he is a sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps uh traditionalist in certain ways So he sells us like 12 rules is a self-help book. And I don't think the average person reading it is very interested in these culture wars. They might be now because they're fans of Jordan Peterson. But the advice is very 
fundamental. It is conservative na- in nature in the sense that it is about sort of individual responsibility, but it's very basic, like self-help 101, pull yourself out your bootstraps, clean your room, shit like that. Um, and I've interviewed a number of people who are Peterson acolytes and Peterson fans. And the interesting thing is that there's this idea, you touched on it in the Vice piece, that he radicalizes people to the far right. Well, what a lot of his fans have told me is that the exact opposite, that he sort of uh, guided them back from the alt-right, um, you know, which I think is his is his, his sort of his point, um, his whole goal. He He's, he's very anti-extremism in, in various cases. There was this profile of him in the New York Times. This was also in the documentary about him, which was called The Rise of Jordan Peterson. And his his like he he's this scholar of of authoritarianism. His house is apparently filled with like f- like paintings of like Stalin and Lenin. Um, and I don't think because he's a fan, but because he he's a weird guy. He wants these reminders that authoritarian authoritarianism can pop up from anywhere. Um, yeah. And his life has gotten off track in the last couple of years, I would say. <laughs> Just a little. Just a little bit. Yeah. So a couple, I guess this was last year. He, uh, he went to rehab for a benzodiazepam addiction. And what I have heard and read is that he started taking benzos in the wake of of two things. His wife was diagnosed with cancer and he was facing, you know, he became famous. He became famous almost on overnight. You know, he was a fucking professor, all of a sudden, one of the, you know, one of the most famous intellectuals in the world, getting tons and tons of criticism from people. And he was stressed out. His doctor prescribed benzos and he became addicted to them. And when he tried to get off benzos, he it, apparently it's been this like grueling, like years long process or year long process of trying to step down from these drugs. He also at one point was like seeking healthcare in Siberia. He got COVID. He spent eight days in, in, in a, um, in a medically induced coma. He has this bizarre diet where he eats only like meat, like, like steak and salt. Um, it, he's a strange guy for sure, but lots of the, of the, the dialogue specifically through the media around him is just, it's incorrect. Yeah. Uh, there's a tendency in some cases to exaggerate or misrepresent what he said. I, so my editor at one point, um, wanted me to read my book editor wanted me to read Peterson and see if we could do a chapter on Peterson. And I read maybe half of 12 rules for life. And there was just like, my book is, is largely case studies of, of basically ideas that are wrong, but that have caught on otherwise. But if you read 12 rules, it's like, you know, uh, show respect for yourself and clean your room and stand up straight. It's just this very, it's self-help. And it's very hard to read the book and be like, wow, this is outrageous. Now, the book is threaded here and there with some sort of traditional and conservative views of the world. But it's not like no one would read that book and like jump to the alt-right. It's very much for if you're a young person in 2020 or, or whenever it came out, there's not a lot of like guidance out there. Like we don't really have religion anymore. You're not going to find a, you know, civic organization there isolation is like a really big thing especially in america and i think and especially with young men especially with young men and i think that's what jordan peterson's for he's like serving the role that the the boy scouts or a church or whatever would have served and i you know i don't think he's not my ideal role model for troubled young men but i'd rather have them reading jordan peterson and watching his talks and like just fucking around in the darkest corners of youtube 
in terms of him being misrepresented, so there was this New York Times profile of him. It was written by Nellie Bowles. And at one point, Jordan Peterson said he referred to enforced monogamy. And people picked up on that. And that became this, uh, you know, it, it sounds bad. And it became this sort of talking point that what he wants is women to be forced into monogamous relationships. Well, it turns out that enforced monogamy is a ter- like a term in sociology and psychology, I guess. Um, and it And it doesn't refer to like the actual like government entities or or you know any sort of top down power forcing people into relationships what it refers to is the sort of social pressure to get married. Um, so it is not as duplicitous as, as it sounds. I do find it interesting that Nellie Bowles wrote this piece because Nellie Bowles, as we talked about in the last episode, is now engaged to Barry Weiss. She wrote about this before she was with Barry. Barry has, has written positively about Jordan. Um, so I would, I, I am sort of curious about if, if, you know, if Nellie's opinion on this has changed or if Barry's opinion on this has changed and what the sort of internal dialogue is about, about him there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, enforced monogamy meaning, I mean, I, I think a lot of, of his stuff and I, I probably read less of him and heard less from his fans than you have but he really is this attempt to like rebuild structure at a time when people are paralyzed by a fraying social fabric and by like a seemingly infinite number of choices you know just what what to buy who to date this is all like well-established aspects of being alive at this very weird moment and i think that's what he's responding to right a lot of it is sort of psych 101 and one of my first pieces about peterson i, I think i wrote three essays about him in total um i i said something about how he, he references that this like like make, make making decisions just forcing yourself to make a decision and he was specifically talking about within the context of relationships and what he was referring to was like the paradox of choice you know you go to a grocery store and there are a hundred a hundred different types of cereal and you can't make the decision and so you just don't make one at all. Um, you know, that's psychology 101. It's not particularly profound. It's not something that he came up with, but it is this sort of like basic basic facet of human psychology. Yeah. Um, now, I mean, I do want to say there's a case to be made that he's a long-winded and incoherent writer. Some of his denser yes. stuff, particularly, did you read, is it Maps of Meaning, his first book? Maps of Meaning, no. Yeah. That's like <laughs> like a thousand pages. Yeah. It's about symbolism. He's really into symbolism and iconography and storytelling and, and myths and myth-making. Like Jungian archetypes yes. and stuff. Right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and like dream interpretation. The, the parts that I find where he goes the most off the rails are like the dream interpretation stuff. Yeah. And he does seem to extract a lot of meaning from his own dreams um which i i like find kind of silly and he also he's done a couple things that i think are were a bad idea like he met with victor orban um in the last couple years i don't think that if you're going to be somebody who is speaking out speaking out against authoritarianism you should be like like friendly with actual authoritarians nope. that seems like a bad idea. Not a good idea um and at one point he said maybe that actually the craziest thing i've seen him say he was on some podcast or on sh- some show, and he said that he drank like two tablespoons of apple cider vinegar and didn't sleep for a month. Like literally no sleep for a month. Because he drank two tablespoons of apple cider vinegar? Yes. He has he has some um, like autoimmune problems or something like that. And so he attributes a lot of his like the recovery of his health to this very strange diet that he's on that his daughter is trying to monetize this like she calls it the lion diet, but it's basically a, a, just an all meat diet, um, like keto taken to the most extreme possible. He's one of these people who thinks that like, you know, you could have some allergic reaction to a food and then it could, you know, make you 
not sleep, literally not sleep for 30 days. I, I find that silly. Um, I think he, I honestly, like, I, I shouldn't diagnose the man. I'm not a psychologist, but I think he probably has some, like, weird mental health shit going on. Yeah, he seems to. And if the, if the charge was he's a little bit of a quack, I, I'd be on board. It's just most of what he does is, is self-help. And there was this, um, so Ethan Strauss is a, a sports writer I really like for The Athletic and, um, I interviewed him once on the sort of baby podcast I had before we launched this one. And he told this great story of he uh, got a text or a call from Andrew Bogut, who is a center in the National Basketball Association, who is uh, – he's been accused of being alt-right. I don't think he's alt-right. I think he's conservative, which is very rare in the NBA. Uh, Strauss lives in the Bay Area. Bogut was in L.A., I believe, or, or Jordan Peterson was going to talk in L.A. Uh Bogut says to Ethan Strauss, come down, let's go see Jordan Peterson together. Strauss is curious about the guy, sees Jordan Peterson. Guess who is opening for Jordan Peterson? It is none other than close personal friend of the podcast, Dave Rubin. Ah, yes, Dave Rubin. Uh, Dave Rubin, who's this, you know, this big YouTube figure in his own right, supposedly, you know, just unorthodox intellectual dark web. In fact, he just he really doesn't like liberals or the left and focuses entirely on that. Setting that aside, so Ruben is up on stage. This is as Ethan Strauss tells it, making all these very online jokes about like Pepe the Frog and the alt right and stuff. Ethan notices that no one in the audience is responding to any of this because they're all just normies. They're not people who spend time online. And I think that story really gets to the assumption. Uh, I'm seeing this online now where people assume that everyone who likes Jordan Peterson likes him because of the like the pronoun thing or all these obscure culture wars with, you know, with like a New York Times writer. I, I really think people are drawn to him because he's giving them something they can't really find elsewhere. And I think if we fail to acknowledge that, uh, that's a mistake. Yeah, he also, in 2018, he spoke to the Seahawks. Uh, Pete Carroll, the Seahawks coach, brought yep. Jordan Peterson on to like give a talk to his to, to his team. This is not because of Jordan Peterson's take on pronouns or compelled speech or enforced monogamy. This is because of this like bootstraps, you know, pull up your britches and get your shit together talk. You can imagine how well that went over in Seattle. <laughs> so were people mad? that he that he talked to the Seahawks they were fucking livid they were totally livid about it I mean okay that's sort of disingenuous because like I, I say this as a Patriots fan but if you watch football you are contributing to a pretty evil enterprise it's like the things you should be mad about with regard to Pete Carroll and the Seahawks you think Jordan Peterson would be pretty low on that list you would think so. I mean, like brain damage among players would maybe be a bigger deal playing. Not that the Seahawks do this, but lots of NFL teams play their pay their cheerleaders something like minimum wage and enforce like actually like pretty fucked up rules about them. Like there was one team a few years ago, I can't remember who it was, that they had some some rule for the cheerleaders that they weren't allowed to to like fraternize with the team. Period. Like if they saw them on the street, they weren't allowed to say hello to them. You would think that that would be the sort of thing people would get pissed about. But no, it's like fucking Jordan Peterson doing a self-help talk for the Seahawks. Right. Uh, yeah. People's priorities are, are always pretty out of whack. Um, I don't want to neglect the, the funniest part of this story, which is grown ass employees at a major book publisher crying, crying, Katie. Yes. Uh, what, what do you, what do you make of that? I mean, I think it's hilarious. And as soon as this happened and everybody started tweeting about it, somebody tweeted a few times at you and I saying like, oh, you're going to talk about this on your podcast. You're going to punch down at those, at those penguin employees. Absolutely. Oh my God. Yes. You're completely <laughs> Absolutely. Correct. We are punching down on, Gladly. Yes, we are punching down on these nameless penguin employees. I am physically punching toward the ground right now. <laughs> 
it is embarrassing. It is fucking embarrassing. And so I think it's funny that Vice published this. I assuming not not like if Vice had done, like Vice could have made fun of these people, but instead, of course, they didn't. It seems like the author probably agreed with them that this book shouldn't be published. A book that, of course, none of them have actually read. No. So here's the question. What do you think is the appropriate response to the bosses when you have a situation like this where people are crying in a meeting and trying to get you to deplatform one of your authors, one of your hugely profitable authors? Yeah, I mean, okay, so I saw like Douglas Murray tweeting like they should just be fired. I I think that's terrible. No, come on. You got to be more. Okay, so let's steel man that for a second. Like, I think that. I don't think that they should have been fired. They're exercising their free speech. This is Canada, so they don't quite have the free speech protections that we have. But this is a private company, and these are internal employees trying trying to change the company's policies. I think that that's okay. However, I think Murray would make the argument, and I saw other people making this argument, that what these employees are doing is trying to, to circumvent the the business model itself, that these are people trying to you know, they're interfering with the company and therefore they should be fired. Yeah. I mean, they, their managers should sit down and talk to them and hear them out and say, look, you're, you're allowed to have input on what books we publish, but at the end of the day, it's not your decision. I mean, I, whenever this has happened a couple times where I'll see sort of lefties on Twitter say like, well, this is just like a, a labor issue. You know, they're just organizing to build a better workplace or whatever, but that's, that, is a complete misunderstanding of how an editorial enterprise like Penguin works. Like the lower level staffers do not get to choose what books are published. And they like, when I was at New York magazine, there were a lot of aspects of what the magazine did. I had no control over for me to just sort of assert that I got to decide something. It's just wrong. So I do think there's a case to be made that like, if you, explain this to an employee and they continue to be really upset and continue to like talk to the media about it at a certain point, it just might not be a good fit for them to work there. I just thought Douglas uh, Murray sort of did not do himself any favors. Cause it's like, Oh, well the free speech bro wants people to get fired just for crying. I mean, this whole thing is ridiculous. And I think these people probably shouldn't be in publishing. Just like I've openly said, a lot of journalists shouldn't be in journalism because they're anti-journalistic. That doesn't mean I think they should be summarily fired on the spot. I do think it's troubling. You know, I mean, it shows that there's a, a, a number of people and I, I, I am going to guess here that there's a generational divide here who really don't understand what the function is of publishing is. And as other people have pointed out, Penguin published Mein Kampf. Yeah. You know, Penguin has published a lot of like very problematic people, but you don't hear people like crying over the fact that they published fucking Hitler. Uh, yeah, I was curious about it. So I just pulled up, uh, there's still a penguin.co.uk page for Mein Kampf. Okay. This is good. Cause like Christmas is coming up. <laughs> Wouldn't that be better as a Hanukkah book? Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Yes, I, I, I want to read you my favorite part from the Vice story. So this is a quote from one of the employees. The company since June has been doing all these anti-racist and allyship things, and then publishing Peterson's book completely goes against this. It just makes all their previous efforts seem completely for- performative. You think? <laughs> really? Do you think Penguin, this giant publisher, doesn't see its top priority as educating its workers about anti-racism. Huh. It's like they're, they're so close to getting it. Yeah, exactly. And there was another, another person who complained that the reason that they're publishing Jordan Peterson is for money. Really? What? <laughs> Wait, really? What? Huh. I am shocked that a giant corporation would be driven by their bottom line and their <laughs> stockholder dividends. Well, that, that was one of my favorite parts is like in the vice story, the journalist is like, uh, um, 
Penguin didn't respond to a series of questions we sent them. It's like, oh, so Penguin didn't answer your questions about why they're publishing a book that's going to sell like two million copies, huh? They must, they must really have something to hide. What, what did you, um, where does the, the white supremacist part even come from? Is that just out of left field? I don't know. Um, has he, I don't, I don't know that he said anything like objectively racist. Um, I'm sure we could find it. Let's, let's Google that real quick. Well, I mean, he's against a lot. I think he's against a lot of like, you know, aspects of sort of modern race trainings and stuff. That doesn't mean he's white supremacist. Oh, here's what it is. So he has, uh, uh, so it's, it, yeah, he's, has basically, he has criticized intersectionality and white privilege. So according to this thinking, if you are opposed to the concepts of intersectionality and white privilege, that de facto makes you a white supremacist. That's so stupid. Yeah, this is the sort of thing where people assume that if you object to something like diversity training, the, the only possible diversity. reason could be, yeah, you hate diversity, you're racist, and not that, oh, well, maybe you've looked at the data and you think that this actually makes race relations worse. Well, it's also like in this, you and I are both against the pro-life ideology. That means we're objectively pro-death. Yeah, well, I mean, I am pro-death. I don't it's know about thing. I know you're kidding, but I yeah. am pro-death. <laughs> um, I, I just think there's like a bunch of people who are incapable of like – reading Jordan Peterson and pushing back where they disagree and actually accepting that like it or not, he's part of the conversation. Like their only move is to say this guy is too evil. He has to be deplatformed, but that's a problem when like there's huge demand for someone. I mean, the problem is like if, if they threw a similar shit fit over a, this is sort of the JK Rowling principle where her publisher was like, go fuck yourself when employees there complain. Um, Peterson is like, I don't know if he's on, Rowling's level, but he's very, very popular. If they throw a similar shit fit over a less well-known author, I, I would not like that author's chances of surviving at that publisher. I mean, this might happen. When is your book coming out? <laughs> April. And I, I hasten to add, it has uh, nothing to do with most cultural war stuff. So leave me alone. Yeah. Do you think that there's going to be uh, you know, some sort of outcry when your book comes out? No. I actually don't. You don't think you really don't think that. I think a few people will try to recycle whatever old charges they've leveled at me because they'll be mad that I have a book out with a major publisher. But I don't know. I actually don't. So there was originally going to be a chapter on some of the gender identity stuff. It got cut just like some other chapters got cut, not for any particular reason. It's just like you write a book. Some stuff works. Some doesn't. So um there's just nothing on there on the one issue where I'm most controversial. I don't think it's going to be a big deal. Jesse, your optimism. You know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of when you and I first met, which was in uh, 2017 or 2018. It must have been 2018. And we went to the Heterodox Academy conference. And it happened to be the last day of the conference was the day before your Atlantic piece was coming out. And I asked you if you were nervous about it. And you said that you weren't and that everything was going to be fine because it was like well-researched and there was nothing wrong with it. Did I actually, yes. did I actually yes. say that? I've you no abso- that? You actually said that. Um, and obviously that's not what happened and i think i think that your your optimism is very cute but i think it's also probably wrong i think that there will be an outcry over your book even if it hasn't even if the word trans isn't in there at all i still think people are going to have a shit fit about it i mean just look what happened with jk rowling's novel that just came out that wasn't about trans stuff and it immediately became a you know according to the to the discourse a book about fucking trans stuff well, but that book did involve a crossdresser and involved like trans adjacent stuff. Look, I, well, maybe I'm being, and she's also twenty thousand times more uh, famous than me. Yes, at this point, but until until April. Yeah, because by then this podcast will have been around a few more months. Clear, we'll both be um, people will be like J.K. Who? Yeah. <laughs> 
exactly. Um, one thing that was very interesting about the Vice article was like the in terms of these like gener arguably generational differences. Clearly, the author was sympathetic to these staffers. There's no doubt about that, yeah. right? You could tell. Yeah. I, I think so. I mean, it's this like bullshit style of news writing where it's like it's news writing written in that sort of straight down the middle way, except like it's clearly on one side, which I don't I don't love that style. Um, well, because it doesn't actually make the ar- the like genuine argument about why Peterson should be published. Yeah, it just sort of puts that argument in, in other people's mouths and, t- and takes stuff at face value. But it's so interesting to me that it seems like the author of the article thought that these staffers crying supports the claim that Peterson or the publisher had done something wrong. Whereas to anyone reading that, who's not in this like very small circle of, of craziness, that's insane. An adult bursting into tears because your public, your employer is publishing a book is not normal. So that difference between what is and isn't considered normal behavior or normal argument is is interesting and important right and then the reaction on twitter i don't know if the vice author thought that people were going to be like cheering this but the reaction was the exact opposite which was just thousands of people making fun of these fucking employees as they should have yeah continue to punch down everybody punching down is the best (laughs) all we're trying to do is eliminate white tears that's all yeah i mean look you don't you don't bully the big kid on the playground you bully the small kid because they can't fight back All right, Jesse, anything else to say about this? There's a chance these – I don't want to like totally ignore the possibility some of the people crying have genuine mental health problems, in which case I would have some sympathy for them. But if you are in a situation where you're unable to do your day-to-day job and if you work at a publisher, your job is to just work there because you're not going to agree with every book published, like you should – you need to get that taken care of. That's not on your employer. That's on you. So I don't know if like the tears are – Genuine mental health issues or uh, so-called weaponized tears where it's just like sort of opportunistic crying, in which case right. I'd be less sympathetic. But um, yeah. Right. Only way to find out is for them to hire us and bring us in for a, another meeting. Oh, my God. We should do uh, like diversity training, Blackton reported uh, equity and inclusion trainings. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So we've gone over the numbers and the managers here. You guys are not punching down enough. You're not <laughs> – putting vulnerable staffers in their place and saying things like i'm the boss fuck you yeah exactly all right in a moment we're going to talk about some more punching down or maybe it's punching up at the guardian but first a word from our sponsors jesse do you know what the hardest part of running a media empire is launching a merch store screwing it up and then immediately having to pull it back offline It's not that. It's all the tears. I am constantly having to deal with my employee weeping over totally normal policies, like no cargo shorts in the office, no pulling a tube in during Zoom meetings, and no, I am not going to stitch your pronouns on your uniform, Jesse. It's just a waste of money. We all know your pronouns because you insisted on getting them tattooed on your forehead. We get it. You're a he, him. Stop crying. (laughs) I didn't create this company to deal with your tears, Jesse, which is why Bambi has been such a godsend. Bambi takes care of HR issues so that I can focus on more important task, like getting into fights with 15-year-old furries on Twitter. Katie, I am not crying. That is just how my eyes sweat. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small businesses like this one. You can get a dedicated HR manager who will help you craft HR policy and maintain compliance for just $99 a month. When full-time HR managers can cost upwards of seventy grand a year, Bambi will save you a ton of money that you can then spend on yourself. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your greatest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. 
From onboarding to terminations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month. Month-to-month, no hidden fees, cancel anytime. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance, so let Bambi help and get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash blocked and reported right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash blocked and reported. Spelled B-A-M to the B-E-E dot com slash blocked and reported. Jesse, I don't know about you, but the first thing I do when I go to a new friend's house is go to their bathroom and look for two things, prescription drugs and dental floss. If I see the new Quip refillable floss pick, this tells me something very important, that my new friend listens to a lot of podcasts. It also tells me that my friend cares about gum health and the environment, because unlike most floss picks, the Quip refillable floss picks is totally reusable. A single refill pod replaces over 180 single-use plastic flossers, so it cuts down on waste and litter. It works great with Quip's sleek electric toothbrush, and it tells all the weirdos hunting through your medicine cabinet that you've got immaculate taste and some clean-ass teeth. Plus, with Quip products, you can get amazing rewards just for brushing your teeth every day, like free products and discounts. Quip also delivers you new brush heads, floss, and toothpaste refills every three months from just $5. Shipping is free, so you can save money and skip the store, which I especially love because I'm a shut-in and I haven't left my house in 25 years. Thank you. Thank you for the writing, Katie. He's trying to speak the truth over here. <laughs> Always sneaks up on me. Bring delight to your everyday brushing and join the over 5 million creepy disembodied mouths floating in the air, brushing eternally with Quip, starting at just $25. Go to getquip.com slash barpod right now and you'll get your first refill free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash barpod, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash barpod. Quip. Better oral health made simple. Okay, so before we uh, move on to our second segment, you can reach us at blockedandreportedpodcast at gmail.com. You can also join our premium subscription program on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash blockedandreported. So if you do that, you get at least three extra bonus episodes a month, episodes you will not hear elsewhere. You also get ad-free versions of every episode. It's probably the greatest deal in the history of capitalism. I would highly recommend it. Uh, and then, yeah, there's the um, the ongoing 4.6, 4.7 Star War on Apple Podcasts. We're currently winning. But if you have a chance, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And you can always check out our subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash blocked and reported. Katie, am I missing anything? Well, we have launched a merch store. It's at barpod.org. However, However. we are so far losing money on the merch store. (laughs) Well, okay. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. I don't want to launch any false controversies here. (laughs) We're losing losing money on certain transactions because there's a discrepancy between the listed prices and then people seem to be getting a – a five or six dollar ghost discount that we cannot explain because we're both completely incompetent. Right. So we have temporarily shut down the merch store. By the time this podcast is in your feed, it will hopefully be up and running again. We are $500,000 in debt. We need, I need a place to live. We need, we need you all to join the Patreon because the store is not working for us. No, but the, the, the gear we have is very cool. I like a lot. We will work out this pricing thing, but it's barpod.org. Check it out. If it's, if it's offline or off to a rocky start. <laughs>
<laughs> we, you know, I was thinking like everything was so, going so well for the podcast. I was thinking that somebody, a business school should hire us to teach. I take that back. No one should hire us to teach at a business school. We don't, we don't need any outside help. We don't need to pay anyone. We got this, dude. Just like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, barpod.org. Wait. Barpod.org. Barpod.org. It makes it sound like we're a nonprofit. Exactly. Which, which we are. We are. Not. No, we are definitely right. a nonprofit when it yeah. comes to the merch store. Uh, yeah. We, your, your marijuana is partially medicinal. So it's. <laughs> hey, you know what? I have been. It has been almost 30 days since I have smoked weed. That is impressive. Congratulations. Do you get like a coin or a chip or something? Uh, no, but I do get to. At, at, at 31 days, I'm going to get very high. That is the plan. Oh, this is tomorrow? Uh, It's like Monday. Okay. Well, we should uh... – Not that it's on my calendar or anything. And then you're going to slip into your old habits or try to do less? I'm going to try to do less. I have Every time I've attempted this before, I have immediately slipped into my old habits. But the plan is to do less. Right. Well, uh, well, good luck. I'm going to continue uh, drinking more than I should because it's because of the pandemic. It's not my fault. And entirely because of the pandemic. Okay. So uh, what are we talking about now? Uh, we are talking about Suzanne Moore, a columnist at The Guardian who just quit. Q-U-I-T. Not to be confused with quip. <laughs> One of our sponsors. <laughs> okay, Suzanne Moore, longtime columnist for The Guardian. She is British. She has written a lot about feminist issues. Before that, she wrote about quote unquote women's issues. She's written a little bit about what she calls the transgender wars, which is this thing we've talked about oftentimes on the podcast, specifically around the Gender Recognition Act in the UK. We have talked about this so much, I don't want to bore you with the details. You can go back and listen to previous podcasts if you really want the details. But like the the TLDR version is that that would make trans people or any person really be able to self-declare their uh, their gender and then like you would have access to any sort of female segregated spaces. Yes. And but we should add, generally speaking, trans people are already allowed to use the facilities of their choice. In the UK, they have more predictions than they have in the US. Um, this would just make it much easier to formally change your sex in sort of a more official way and, yeah, potentially gain other, uh, you know, from the point of view of the trans person, benefits for that. It's just – it's messy because people seem to not understand that in the UK, you already – if you're trans, you're already protected usually with regard to bathrooms and stuff. You don't need – uh, a gender recognition certificate. But yes, there's been huge culture wars over self-ID and we've talked about this a lot, so we don't need to fully reiterate it. Right. So Suzanne Moore, columnist at The Guardian, former columnist at The Guardian, has been attempting to write about this for some time. And uh, she quit um, in, in protest uh, last week or maybe earlier this week. Time has ceased to have any meaning. And she published a piece at Unheard, which is a UK – it's Unheard is UK, right? Yeah. A UK publication um, that publishes sort of heterodox uh, heterodox thoughts. Um, and so in her piece, she details her long career at The Guardian and in the UK press. Um, and she talks about how why, over the past couple of years, while she's tried to write about about trans issues and 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 women's issues more broadly, this has been sort of subtly edited out of her pieces. Um, so without anybody saying like you can't write about this, what her editors have been doing is not letting her write about this. So I'll start with her sort of history in, of getting involved in the trans wars. So in 2013, she published a column in the New Statesman with this line. This is about sort of women's happiness and women's perception of themselves. She wrote, we are angry with ourselves for not being happier, not being loved properly, and not having the ideal body shape, that of a Brazilian transsexual. So this was in 2013. Shit was way less heated online than it is now, I believe. Um, and Suzanne Moore had been criticized for most of her career from the right. Um, and this time around, she writes, uh, the abuse was from the left. 
This is a quote from her unheard piece. The abuse I got over the trans issue was different and worse than anything that had come before. Social media was beginning to flex its muscles. It was a mindfuck. Twitter was full of people telling me how they were going to rape me, decap decapitate me, ejaculate inside my head, burn me. This was all somehow to do with the transsexual remark. The police came around, but they don't really get Twitter. They said, th they said things like, don't email them back, love. The worst threats were from people who knew where I lived and said that they would give my then 11-year-old a good fisting. Not nice. No. Okay, so this was in 2013. She gets all of this, like, poison online from activists who are pissed about this one sort of offhanded comment. She writes in this unheard piece that the comment was sort of unsensitive, um, and she realizes that and probably wouldn't have used the term transsexual, Brazilian transsexual now, in part because Brazilian transsexuals do have like among the highest murder rates in, in the world. What's interesting there is that this, the, when you look at statistics of trans murder rates, they're often conflated. They are wildly overblown. Part of this is because people take these, this very specific situation, which is transsexual or transgender sex workers in Brazil who are oftentimes working in these very poor areas who do have uh, high murder rates and conflating that with like the, the world, you know, the world statistics or the American statistics on, on transgender murder rates, which the American statistics at least are not actually higher for trans people than for any other demographic. And in fact, in some cases are lower. Although if you break it, if you, if you're like a trans woman of color, you do have a high murder rate, but also if you're like a person of color, you have a high, like it's, it's, it's very much conflated with the other stuff. Right. So yeah, if you are, you know, involved in the sex trade, if you're involved in the drug trade, much higher murder rates than just like the average trans person on the street. But this often gets conflated, maybe as a way to, I'm not sure why actually, maybe this is a way to like um, inform the world about the difficulties that trans people go through, but also like it's dishonest and it's not actually true to say like the average trans man in the street or the average trans woman in the street is any more likely to be murdered than, you know, anybody else. It's just not true. And, and it's also like, it's not, the reason I sometimes harp on this is like you're not helping a group if you no. scare the shit out of them. Like, okay, if you're if you're a trans woman of color who's a sex worker, you should be aware that you are need to be to the extent you have control over a situation, be careful because you do face a higher murder rate. It is not good or moral or right to tell the average trans American person or British person where there's even less violence, like you're in danger every time you leave the house. That that is not helping people to fill them with fear they shouldn't feel. I know. I find it so disingenuous on the part of activists who continue to repeat these claims. Some of them must know that they're not true. I mean, a lot of people just repeat them because they believe them. Yeah. But some of these people must know that this isn't true, but they continue to repeat them, terrifying the people that they're trying to help. Right. Um, so, yeah, th so that that was one, you know, that the Brazilian transsexual comment was something more got in trouble for. But she's also, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong here, she's also gotten in trouble basically because she's against this, what I call sort of gender identity essentialism, where like what it means to be a woman is to feel like a woman on the inside. Right. She writes about how this, I think she put it very well, there's this interesting thing happening in sort of contemporary queer ideology where you say gender is this intractable, internal, meaningful, soul-like thing inside of us all, and yet sex yeah. doesn't have any meaning at all. Which is, if anything, the opposite. I mean, because most people, as she points out, right, most people right. are male or female. And there's a few intersex people sort of in the middle. Right. Sex is a material thing that exists. Gender identity is this nebulous concept that emerged in like the 1960s and has now become as meaningful as, as sex itself. And, and I think it's hard to argue with her when you see like 
the extent to which progressives often will not use words like woman or female, you know, it's pregnant people. It, you know, it, people differ as to like, people differ as to how much this is worth arguing about, but I think it's very true that like we're not really allowed in progressive spaces to talk about sex. And until 30 seconds ago, feminism was based on the idea that being biologically female brought a lot of sort of cultural shit with it. And, and that has been undercut now because you're not supposed to talk about people's biological sex, even though it, it's a huge part of what it means to be alive, whether you're male or female. You're not even supposed to use the terms male and female, you know, it's, right. yeah, or woman and man. You know, this weird thing has happened where you have organizations, even like Planned Parenthood, referring to women as like pregnant people. Um, and it, this is not to say that trans men can't get pregnant and have children. They do. That happens. I know a few who have done it. It's a real thing. I think there's room for sensitivity. Um, but it's also understandable why women would object to this. And this like this strange fucking things happen happens where you never hear these fights about inclusion in like when it comes to men's spaces. Never, ever, ever, ever. It only yeah. uh, like nobody calls uh, calls, you know, men like ball havers. It just doesn't happen. I would I'd like to be called a ball haver. But you would have to have some. <laughs> oh, hey. <laughs> so in 2020, in March of this year, Suzanne Moore wrote a piece, one of the rare pieces that she was allowed to like publish on The Guardian about this stuff. Um, and it was about this, a woman named Selena Todd, who's a philosophy professor in the UK. And she was, she was deplatformed from a, an event that she was supposed to speak at because she had also spoken pre previously at an event for Women's Place UK, which was a group that, an organization that formed to, to fight the changes to the Gender Recognition Act. And so she publishes this piece. Uh, we'll, we'll put a link to it. It's not particularly inflammatory. It just talks about, you know, this ongoing conflict between some feminist activists and, you know, some trans activists. And uh, so she, she writes this piece. And then soon after, there's an, an all-staff meeting at The Guardian. She wasn't there for this. She wasn't on staff. She's a, a contract columnist. But so soon after, there's this meeting. And um, I can imagine it was probably something like the, the meeting at, at Penguin. Um, and so during this meeting, you know, people are, are just like railing against Suzanne Moore. And a trans, not a columnist, a trans developer said that she was resigning from The Guardian because of this column. This gets repeated throughout the media. Uh, there's a, an open letter, not an open letter. There's a letter signed, a letter sent to the Guardian leadership signed by 338 employees. The, the letter doesn't specifically call out, uh, Suzanne Moore by name, but it is like clearly about her. And it, re it refers to the Guardian publishing quote, anti-trans right, material, right. right? Um, so this is signed by 338 employees, Guardian employees all over the world. Um, it gets leaked to BuzzFeed. Bu BuzzFeed publishes a story about it and then includes this detail about how this trans woman has announced that she is resigning from the Guardian because of the, because of this column, because of the Guardian's transphobia. What BuzzFeed doesn't mention and what, so this was, subsequently reported all across the media. What very few people bothered to mention was that, in fact, the trans employee had resigned several weeks before Suzanne's column came out. So she'd given her notice and she was still there staying on, like in the period after you give your notice. She re-resigned. Re she re-resigned. And I uh, I checked on this. I fact-checked this with a current Guardian employee. This is true. This is what happened. She did not resign in protest because she had already fucking resigned. The media, of course, just like publishes this claim without any sort of due diligence because that's that they fucking do. Yeah. I mean, it, so you had said, I think a minute or two ago, you referred to the column as uncontroversial, just saying like there, there's some conflict between sort of trans rights and cisgender women's rights. But that the whole problem is like a bunch of people have declared you're, you're not 
allowed to have any opinion on the shift toward gender identity as like the reigning category. Other than that, it's great. Right. It's like saying that gravity is controversial, you know, I mean, which it can be if enough people say that gravity doesn't exist, it can become controversial. But the the column itself, there's nothing directly inflammatory about it. It's controversial because people decided that talking about this is taboo. Yes. And and the Guardian, uh, the UK Guardian did a pretty straight down the line middle editorial just explaining that there is some conflict here if you view women as like stemming from biological category. Self-ID does bring some challenges. This was not a transphobic column. It did not come down hard one way or another. It just pointed out the existence of the conflict. And then the American office freaked out and wrote an article about how horrible it was that The Guardian had even presented this as a controversy. Uh, meanwhile, as we've mentioned in another episode, if you look at the UK population, they are not in favor of most of the sort of specific aspects of self-ID. So The Guardian was was like writing about a controversy that is, in fact, a controversy in the UK. Maybe it should be. Maybe you think these are all these British people are all bigots, but like it is, in fact, a controversy. And then the American Guardian is very explicitly saying, you're not allowed to say this is a controversy. You're not allowed to have any dissenting view on it, which to me, does not make for a good journalistic environment. Right. It's ignoring the voices of the people around you, not just your staffers, but the majority of the country. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's there's no other way to put it. Um, so, yeah, it, it just – so I guess – I mean, my sense reading Moore's unheard piece was just – she felt like things were getting worse and worse at The Guardian. It was harder and harder for her to write anything about this issue, in part because like so many of her colleagues, 338 eight of them signed their letter – and then their names got leaked. So she found out that all these people she thought were her sort of colleagues who liked her uh, were speaking out against her. Right. And then she went and she she got on Twitter and she published some of their names, um, which then people accused her of doxing her colleagues. <laughs> doxing. I, they don't know what doxing is. I love the way people use that word. It's a catch-all for everything that you don't like, much like Nazi. Or turf. Yeah. She also notes in her piece that so she got you know there was a lot of hostility within uh, within the Guardian towards her you know personal attacks towards her and that her editors were just silent on this and they didn't defend her um, which I think is pretty fucked up I think if there's like if one of your columnists is being harassed I think that you know the bosses should um, maybe you know like deal with that. Th- that was sort of the point where. So I think there's a version of of this sort of article, like the unheard one, where it's like, you know, people are being so mean to me, I'm being attacked, where sometimes people respond too negatively just to criticism. But to me, it is her editor's job to stand by her if if hundreds of Guardian staffers are coming out against her. That is such an untenable position to begin as a columnist. And I really think they had to just stand up if only to say, we respect Suzanne's uh contributions and we stand by her ability to chime in on controversial subjects but it sounds like they never did that at all yeah it's i mean it just shows like a real lack of guts on their part and you know and maybe they all agree maybe they all think that um you know her her column is deeply transphobic and she's deeply transphobic that's i guess that's possible but even if you you get the you get the same dms and emails i do a lot of people disagree on this stuff but will never say so publicly right they're scared which is uh, like Good reason why. Uh, there was, you know, we should say there was one Guardian um, Guardian employee who did stand up for Suzanne. That was Hadley Freeman, who's a, a great writer and uh, continues to be a columnist at The Guardian, which I'm sure is a very uncomfortable position for her to be in now. Yeah. And um, look, I, I guess I've, I've said and written repeatedly that I don't think any of these debates really um, sway me away from from – you know, my beliefs that trans people deserve full rights. They deserve to be treated the way they want to be treated and referred to the way they wanted to be referred. But like 
this does represent like a fairly revolutionary rejiggering of gender and sex. What, what some activists are calling for this idea that gender identity trumps everything else. And that as soon as someone announces their gender, they just are not only that gender, but that sex. This is literally what people claim. And, and not, this is not something that, you know, there are a lot of very sensible trans people who realize that this is a ridiculous thing to say. Yeah. No, this is like the more academic, radical leading right. edge of, of Tumblr queer culture, except it's now getting into like the guardian right right and and you can completely make forceful arguments for trans rights without getting into this weird sort of spiritual religious gender soul territory but but to say you're not allowed to disagree with these like pretty radical revolutionary claims without being tarred as a bigot which is something you and i have both experienced and you're not allowed to bring some common sense into it with regard to for example kids and teenagers um i think that's this is all why her her unheard piece resonated with me and why i feel bad for her right she brought this up sort of briefly in her column but there's this thing that activists do where they repeat repeat these meaningless platitudes and they just shut down the conversation so you say you know you know you're denying my humanity you're you're erasing my existence you're denying my right to exist. None of that is true. None of that no. is true. But it just shuts down the conversation. It's a way of just like screaming uncle and everybody has to like stop and back up because you're about to have a fucking pissy fit. I mean, it's like I, I think the U.S. tax rate should be higher. Imagine if I if someone wanted to cut the tax and I said, well, we're not going to even debate what the tax rate should be because clearly you want poor people to starve to death. Exactly. I mean, that, that's sort of what this is. You're taking like a, a position a lot of people hold and you're rendering it unsayable. It's one thing for random assholes on Twitter to do that. Watching journalists participate in this. Journalists who like they could be tomorrow the one who, who says the wrong thing about the wrong subject and it gets piled on by Twitter assholes. It's so disturbing to me just the cowardice being displayed by so many journalists. I, I've lost respect for so many people because again – this is not anyone saying like we should fire trans people or kick them out of their housing. There, there's no debate about that in liberal spaces. The debate is over these very specific radical claims that that deserve to be discussed, especially if they're going to be codified into law. Yeah. This, so today somebody tweeted, uh, both of us, apparently there's some plugin for Chrome that will alert you if a Twitter feed is by like a known alleged transphobe. And what it does is hilariously, all it does is like turn the text red so you can still see everything. It's just that your text is red instead of blue or black or whatever. So it's easy, it's easier to read. <laughs> yeah. It's easier to read. So both you and I are, uh, are like, if you go to, if you have this, this plugin and you go to my Twitter, your Twitter, it's, we're both, we're both on here. However, people like Mitch McConnell, their tweets are fine. You know, the Ayatollah committee, his <laughs> Tweets are fine. They're, you right. know, people with actual power who actually do want to limit trans people's rights. People aren't fucking yelling about them. They're yelling at people like Suzanne Moore and me and you and J.K. Rowling. There was a um a a, a Trump decision. I forget if it was Health and Human Services or what that um you know was potentially harmful for for trans people and basically said biological sex is all there is to it. There's no room to treat people in accordance with their gender identity. And I'll never forget, I was traveling on a reporting story, but people just like jumped down my throat on Twitter that my Atlantic article about 13-year-olds debating whether to transition was the reason the Trump administration – it's just – it is – it gets um deranged. The focus on like on liberals who aren't woke enough and the – you know – uh Lack of attention to the people, like even just the obsession with turfs, the the power of turfs relative to the power of conservatives, who are the ones who actually make policy that does hurt. I mean, this is all so online and it gets so esoteric, and it would be so hard to explain to a normal person. But 
you know, journalists spend all day every day on Twitter. So this is this is how the battle lines are presented. And it's just it's not healthy. So you don't think that Donald Trump is sitting around reading The Atlantic? No, I think I think he probably uh, did not read my 12,000 word story that presented youth transition in a mostly positive light and then said biological sex is all that matters. No, maybe I'm being naive. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're selling yourself short. He definitely has a subscription. Uh, okay, so Suzanne, she left and she's now, uh, set up shop at the, at Substack, right? Like everyone else? Of course. Of course. Naturally. Like everyone else. Yeah. So that'll be interesting to see. We will post links to her unheard article and her Guardian article about, uh, about this deplatforming and her Substack in the comments. It's just like, I mean, it's sort of the same with Andrew Sullivan, where Andrew Sullivan was one of the few mainstream writers that actually tried to grapple with the sex and gender stuff in what I thought was a compassionate way. And, I think you'd have to be insane to say Andrew Sullivan is anti-trans, but you know, that's problematic. So now he has to be on Substack. It's just, it's like we're siphoning, we're sort of, um, pushing all the less than perfectly woke people behind individual paywalled brands, which is just not good. Cause, cause so many, like a lot of the Guardian's coverage of the stuff is completely unreadable. I, Jesse, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up Andrew Sullivan. <laughs> yes. This was, I, I didn't mean to. Good segue. So we're recording this on Friday, November 27th. If you read Andrew Sullivan's newsletter, his new Substack, you will notice that today he is on vacation and he has, uh, he has been replaced one time only by yours truly. And I wrote a piece for Andrew called, Where Have All the Lesbians Gone? They've Come Out as Non-Binary. Um, this just went online while we were recording. So I don't know if there's a shit show about it yet. I hope not. I hope that, um, I honestly, I sort of hope that it's paywalled and the only people who read it are people who won't yell at me. We'll see what happens. We're going to be discussing this more, um, that piece and this issue more broadly on our Patreon episode. So if you are interested in that, check us out at patreon.com slash blocked and reported. What I love is like, I'm sure. Andrew Sullivan was like worried because he's like, I want Thanksgiving off, but how am I going to find someone who is even more of an evil bigot than I am? No such person exists. And then, and then you came along and you're the perfect fit for that. You know, I think that he was, he was trying to decide between me writing about, about lesbians going extinct or Charles Murray writing about race. (laughs) Those were the choices. Very similar. Uh, Okay. Did we, anything else we want to say about Suzanne Moore? No, I think we're good. Okay. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, if Katie cries one more time during this podcast, she's out of here. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, if you're ever offered a job at Penguin, be sure to bring your own Kleenex. Kleenex.